0: This week on Pointing the Way with Pastor Shad Smith. Welcome to Pointing the Way, a ministry of the Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. We pray you will find direction for living as we look into the Word of God today.
1: Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews has been teaching these Jews that their old religion was not going to save them. They had to have something better than religion. Uh, This text talked about how they would sacrifice in their name of religion, yet they still worried about their sin. Uh, It didn't take care of things. If religion was enough, then why in the world did Jesus have to come and die? If you could get to heaven simply by being religious, then the death of Jesus was a blunder. It it was a mistake. Ladies and gentlemen, it does take more than religion to go to heaven. And the sad fact is, you and I, we don't have what it takes. Notice in verse number 12, we didn't read that far down, but it says in verse 12, But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice, for sins, forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Uh, that verse right there is the heart of the entire gospel message. Uh, we don't have what it takes. We can't do a single thing to pay for our sins. But the uh, the, the, the man, Jesus, uh, has he has everything that every lost man, every lost woman, every lost boy, every lost girl needs. I don't have what it takes, but Jesus has what it takes. All of us have a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. And there are only two possible choices we can make with our sin problem. Number one, you can try to pay for your sins by doing something to merit God's salvation, to gain His forgiveness. Or, you're going to have to depend on what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross to pay for your sin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I... am far more confident in what Jesus has done to pay for my sins than what I've done to pay for my sins. No amount of religious work, religious efforts, doing good, hospitality, kindness, none of that is going to suffice on Judgment Day to atone for our sins. And so Jesus has come and done for us what we could not do for ourselves simply because we don't have what it takes. Uh, the the writer of Hebrews gives us three things on this thought this morning that I want to bring to your attention. Much of it uh, we've already talked about before, but he he reiterates for emphasis here. In the first four verses of chapter ten, we have first of all the interpretation of the old symbols. Verse one says, "For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image." of Of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. What the writer of Hebrews tells us in this verse is that the Old Testament sacrificial system, he says in verse 1 that that law was a shadow of good things to come. Now, you don't have to be a scholar to understand what a shadow is. Uh, I'm going to get a couple of our young folks to help me. Seth, uh, if you'll go and turn those lights off right there. And uh, Brother Tommy, if you don't mind, you and Terry, if y'all want to one on each side, kind of turn these lights in here down just a second. Okay, can we do that? Y'all don't fall asleep now. This is not nap time. This is illustration time. And Miss Anna, if you'll come here for a second. Anna's got a light here. All right. Let me see something here. How, how many of you ladies, young ladies, are wearing a ring? Any of you young ladies? Would you bring your, take your ring off and bring it here? All right. Let's just see if this is going to work. Now, Emily's got a beautiful little ring. Some boy gave you this ring. Better not. Okay. All right. Now, I'm holding the real ring in my hand. If you notice there, how many of y'all can see that? Just say amen if you can. All right. Come over here, Emily, if you don't mind. Try to put that ring on your finger. Not that ring. You can't. Well, reach out and grab it. Not working. Okay. Okay. Who's got something here to eat? Why am I giving it to you? One of you kids, anybody got anything to snack on? Anything to eat? Okay, you'll take that. How many of you you young men like Rice Krispie Treats? Avery, you like a Rice Krispie Treat? You do? Well, come on up here. We're going to try something. How many of y'all can see that Rice Krispie Treat? Y'all see that? I'll reach up there and take a bite of it. Come on. You can't take a bite of it. Well, you can take a bite of that one. That's the real one, okay? I'm going to show you something, ladies and gentlemen. You can see the shadow of a ring, but you can't put it on. It does nothing to adorn you. You can see the shadow of food, but it'll never feed you. And watch this, ladies and gentlemen. You can see the shadow of the cross. But the shadow is not the reality. The shadow will never save you. It takes the cross to save you. All they had was the shadow of the cross. Now, thank you, gentlemen. You can turn the lights back on. Thank them, fellas, for helping me today. All right. All right. People that live under the religion of the Old Testament, they lived in the shadows. They live in the shadows. And all the shadow is, is a shadow. It, it, it's a representation of something real, but it's not the real thing. Just like the shadow of the ring never decorated that young lady's hand. The shadow of the rice krispy treat never fed that young man that wanted the rice krispy treat. Ladies and gentlemen, the shadow of the cross never saved anybody in the Old Testament. It wasn't until Jesus actually came and died on the cross. The Hebrew people were starting now to put their faith in the shadow rather than what the shadow stood for. And that's what he's writing to them about right here. He's saying, hold on, hold on. Your your faith is not in those shadows, not in those sacrifices, not in those rituals, those religious things. You're getting it wrong. You need to place your faith in the cross of the Lord Jesus. All the shadow was, was, it was there to remind them, it was a symbol. And interpreted correctly, it reminded them or pointed them to the reality. You see, people in the Old Testament were saved the same way you're saved. The same way you're saved. How is a man, woman, boy, or girl saved? By faith. You say, well, Jesus hadn't came and died yet. That's right, He hadn't came and died yet. So it required faith. You and I get saved the same way. We're a group of people looking back to the cross, looking back at what has already happened. It's still a faith transaction. It wasn't the sacrifices, it wasn't the shadow that saved. Those shadows are simply interpreted as a symbol to point people to the real thing. You can't, listen, ladies and gentlemen, you can't grab onto that that shadow up there on the wall. You can cling to that cross. You see what I'm saying? It's something real. It's something tangible. Religious ritual, religious shadows never saved anybody. And the religious rituals of today won't save you. What are some of our religious rituals today? Well, not all of them are bad. Take, for instance, church membership. I have nothing against church membership, and you ought to be a member of the church. If you're not a member of the church, why not? Become a member of the church and serve God. If you're not baptized, get baptized. Baptism is a ritual, it's something we do in obedience, but it's a ritual. It doesn't save you, it's something you do after you get saved. But a lot of people, they'll depend on their church membership, they'll depend on their baptism. All these religious things, religious things, uh, making them think that surely, surely they're saved. They must be saved because they walk the aisle and north Northside. Ladies and gentlemen, it's just as easy to go to hell from a pew at Northside Baptist Church as it is a bar stool down there in Hiram. Just as easy. Religious ritual will not save you. If you don't have the blood of Christ applied over your sin debt, I've got news for you. You're still as lost at the end of the day and still as liable to God for your sin. The folly of these Hebrews is that some of them are thinking now about going back to those shadows. And how foolish it is, how foolish, Avery, would it be for you to sit there and lick that wall like you almost did a while ago when you got the real thing right there. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, listen, for you to go over there and cling to that shadow when the real thing has happened, that's foolish, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm telling you, somebody today that is giving up their time and their talents for a religious system today, and you say, well, all I want is is just a good church membership and a Sunday school class, and let me put on a tie and get a Bible and come down there. Don't talk to me about changing my life or getting saved. I've got a, a good church membership. Listen, you're just as silly as those Jews that were looking to grab a shadow when the real thing was here. The real thing, the real thing is better. I got on my phone, I got a picture of my wife. When I go out of of town, I'll put on my screensaver on my phone, the desktop picture there. I'll put a picture there of my wife. And it's beautiful to have a picture of my wife, but Philip, it's far better to have the real thing. I mean, I would sit there and I can kiss that, that phone and look like a dummy. I'd rather kiss on her than kiss on the picture. The real thing's better. And that's what he's saying, ladies and gentlemen, but but, you don't have to settle for shadows when there is substance. There's something real. Something real. Some of you, ladies and gentlemen, God says to you today, you've been a church member all your life, but you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. It's time for you to let go of the symbols today. Walk the aisle and say, today I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ unashamedly. You may be a member of the church. To say, I need more than church membership, I need a relationship with God through His Son. The symbols, how are they interpreted? They point us to the reality, the cross. In verses 5 down to verse 12, we see what I call the interjection of the omnipotent Savior. The interjection of the omnipotent Savior. For you see, right in the middle of their old religious rituals, God interjects human history By taking on human flesh and becoming a man. Verse 5, we see that Jesus here is coming now to earth. And uh, we see a little bit about what he was thinking when he became a man. Look at verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith. What did Jesus say right before he stepped out of heaven and stepped into Mary's womb? He said, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body. He's talking to his father. But a body. Thou hast prepared me. Did you see that? He he says God the Father prepared a human body for him to get into. Now you and I, when we receive our human body, our human body is a product of our mother and our father coming together. But when Jesus received a body, a human body, it was not the product of an earthly father and an earthly mother. It was the product of God the Father. God the Father made Jesus a body; it was divinely prepared. Now, why is that so important? Well, he's talking about the virgin birth. He's talking about the virgin birth. Jesus was born of a virgin. Some people think that that don't matter. They say, "Why does it matter if Jesus was born of a virgin? Just let him come and die on the cross. Well, that's all we needed him to do." Ladies and gentlemen, if he had died on the cross and had not been virgin born, he wouldn't have been any different than anybody else that had ever died on the cross. You see, ladies and gentlemen, him being virgin-born means that, uh, that that he could be uh, our substitute. He could be our sa- sacrifice, our Savior. If he had been born of a father and a mother, he would have been tainted with the same human sin uh, that you and I are tainted with when we're born. But because he had no earthly father, he didn't come to this place born a sinner. You understand, I hope, that all of us are born sinners. You don't become a sinner. You were born sin. Nobody had to teach you how to sin. How many of you ever went to sin class? Anybody? Nobody ever had to teach you to sin. We are born sinners, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody had to teach us that. We didn't become sinners. You and I were born sinners. But Jesus, however, Jesus was in a body that His Father prepared for Him. He took on a perfect, sinless body. Why did He have to do that? Because He came here to do something for you and I that we were powerless to do for ourselves in our own body. And Jesus saw that you and I were powerless over this flesh. So interjected into human history is the God of the universe. He takes on flesh. He comes here. He takes on the body. And He does for you and I what we can't do because we simply don't have what it takes. Verse 9. This omnipotent Lord. In verse 9 and verse 7 He says, Lo, I come to do thy will. You remember over in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to his Father, Not my will, but thine be done. He always talked about the Father's will. What was it the Father's will? It was the Father's will for him to take that body that God had prepared for him and allow that body to be sacrificially nailed to a cross in my place and in your place. And the Bible says in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews reminds them how powerless their religion was. He says, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They, they had a religious system that could never remedy their sin problem. You remember in the uh, in the tabernacle we talked about it a few weeks ago, uh, all those articles of furniture in there, you know, there's a table and there's an altar and there's a labor and there's a, the Ark of the Covenant and there's a lampstand and the showbread, all those things. The one article of furniture missing from the tabernacle. No chairs. Don't you know those priests working over there at the tabernacle of the temple, they got tired? But there was no place in there for them to sit down. Why? Because the work never got finished. As long as they were in there, there was no time to sit. Uh, It it was time to work. And then at the end of the day, after they put in 8, 10, 12 hours over at the tabernacle, they were still powerless to save anybody. What were they they doing? They were just holding off until help could come. They were just paying the interest so the debt wouldn't come due in full. So ladies and gentlemen, God's interjection of an omnipotent Savior, an all-powerful Savior to do for you what you could not do for yourself is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those Squire parson saying, when I could not come to where He was, He came to me. He came down here and He did what you couldn't do for yourself. Some of you today say, well, I practical. How do you know you're going to heaven? Some of you think today, well, I'm trying to be a good person. Oh, no, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have what it takes. If being a good person was enough in half of the world, you ask them, go out to Dallas today, stop at lunch and say, how do you know if you're going to heaven? I'm trying to be a good person. They have this idea that at the end of life, God is going to take all the deeds of life and he's going to put them on some grand cosmic scale and all the good deeds are over here and all the bad deeds are over here and if suddenly uh, at the end of your life, uh, the good outtips the bad, uh, then you can go to heaven. But that wasn't the story for the old thief on the cross next to the Lord Jesus that had maybe five minutes to live when he said, Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to go back and do more good. He had to have grace and thank God grace is what he got. I couldn't do enough good and you couldn't do enough good. That's why we depend on the good grace of our omnipotent Savior to do for us what we cannot do. And now in verse 13, down through the end of the chapter, we see the implications of all this for old sinners. The implication for old sinners. What is all of this that we've talked about today? What does it mean for me and you? Well, all of us are old sinners, but you need to understand there's two categories of old sinners. First of all, there's the lost sinner. And I I used to be a lost sinner on my way to hell. But then, May the 5th, 1984, I became a different category of sinner. I became a saved sinner. A sinner whose life has been changed by the power of that cross right there. In verse number 13, after Jesus sat down, after doing redemption's work, it says, from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. It seems to indicate in verse 13 that as Jesus sat down on heaven's throne, He is sitting there with expectation. He is sitting there with anticipation. What is He expecting? What is He anticipating? He is anticipating the day that His enemies will be His footstool. When is that going to happen? That is the day that Jesus returns to planet earth. Ladies and gentlemen, King Jesus is seated on the throne. And one of these days, he's going to come and he's going to step off that throne and he's going to call his children home. At that moment, he's not coming back to planet Earth. He's not fighting the battle at that moment. That's the moment the devil's going to have his parade on Earth called the Great Tribulation. You don't want to be there for that. But then, he'll come back to heaven. And there we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at the end of that tribulation, period, King Jesus is going to get up from that throne. He's going to ride a up on a white horse. The Bible says in Revelation 19, the armies of heaven shall go with him, and he will split the eastern sky, and his enemies will be his footstool on that day. He said, well, what's that got to do with me? Well, it all depends on which team you're playing for today. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, listen to what Paul said. Paul said, for if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son." Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, if you are lost today, you're not the friend of God. You are His enemy. Jesus is looking forward to making His enemies His footstool. He's anticipating the day that all those who reject His blood and cause Him to suffer so much, all those are going to be under His feet one day. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're lost today... You're under that big foot. That's where you are when Jesus comes back. So the implications of all of this for all sinners is when Jesus comes and stamps out his enemies, you're going to get stamped out. If you're lost, you're one of God's enemies today. You'll spend eternity separated from him, incurring his wrath in a place called hell. But God doesn't want to deal with you as an enemy. John 3.16 says God so loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants to treat you not as His enemy, but as His friend. He wants to, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. He wants to be your friend today. And He wants to do for you exactly what He says in verse 17 that He will do for these Hebrews. Verse 17 says, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, the implication of this message today for lost sinners is that if you stay lost, you're going to remain the enemy of God and you're going to be under His foot one day. The implication for saved sinners is that when you call on Him, He forgives you your sins and He remembers them, verse 17, no more. Do you ever think about, Brother Ronnie, the day you'll see Jesus face to face? The moment you'll see. I've wondered if on that day I might, you know seeing him and knowing what he's done for me I, I wonder if I might just go to him and I say, Lord I'm so sorry for all those sins that I committed down there on earth and, oh God I'm so sorry for everything I did that I shouldn't have done and, Lord I'm sorry for all the grief I caused you and the Lord says what are you talking about? Well, you, you know what I'm talking about Lord what sins are you talking about? I don't, I don't have a recollection of sins. Those things are gone. For the Bible says in verse 18, where there is remission of these, there is no more offering. In other words, when God says you're forgiven, it's forgotten. It's gone. It's, it's cast as far as, as the east is from the west in the sea of God's forgetfulness. It's at the bottom of that ocean. Nobody's going to pull them up against you anymore. No more sin to forgive. So what about the sins I hadn't committed yet? Well, they were all paid for at the cross. And so in 1984, I said, Jesus, would you forgive me of everything I've done? And he said, yes, I forgive you not just on what you've done, but what you hadn't done yet. And all of it is forgiven at the cross of Calvary. That's the implication for old sinners. Praise God, my sins Is that a good way to leave
0: planet Earth? Thank you for joining us today. Pointing the Way is a ministry of Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. If you would like to contact the ministry, you may write Pointing the Way, 120 Northside Church Road, Dallas, Georgia, 30132. Or visit us on the web at www.northsidedallas.com. Until next time, open God's Word to point the way for direction in your life.